It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Thank you for joining us on another edition of Rico Bronia. We are four days now into Mets spring training games. So we have gotten to the point of spring training games in which it's, all right, I've seen enough. Can we start the real things? <laughs> That's usually where I'm at in spring training, but it's still sort of exciting. I mean, Saturday, watching multiple Met games, Sunday. It's funny, during the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, when you have these afternoon spring training games, especially now uh, being on in the afternoon, it, I find it so difficult to watch. Like back in the day, when I was doing middays, what I would normally do is I'd come home and I'd watch a spring training game. Like, what else am I doing? I was a single dude uh, all from work at one o'clock in the afternoon doing afternoon drive where we're not going to sit here breaking down spring training games. I, I don't watch it, but I know what's going on. And then even when I get home, if the game happens to be on TV, it's tough to be motivated to watch when you already know the outcome. So I've really watched a lot of highlights of Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And I think we'd all agree that the lead story so far of Mets spring training five days in would be the kids led by Ronnie Mauricio, the performance of Brett Beatty, who's off to a very good start. It's a limited sample size. And I think we all have to keep that in mind. I'm keeping it in mind, but I also acknowledge that three, four days into spring training, that's the headline of your Met fan. The fact that there are two bats in particular, Brett Beatty, but more so Ronnie Mauricio, who have kind of burst onto the spring training scene. Beatty is a guy, and we've talked about this, who has an outside shot to make the team. I've laid out why I think it's difficult for him to break through and do it, but he's got a shot. We saw him at the major league level last year. Ronnie Mauricio is a little bit different. Ronnie Mauricio's year at double a last year was very average, you know, and he's still playing shortstop, which is another thing to keep in mind. So the Mets obviously never felt he was that close because if they felt he was close to the major league level, we would start to see the position change. And Billy Epler, even a week ago, has hinted at no position change. So for a guy who you would hope is close, is he close position-wise? If he's still playing the position of a guy who's going to be on the team for the next 10 years, probably not. But Ronnie Mauricio goes to winter ball, and I think we all started paying attention to that, that he goes to winter ball, he looks bulked up and different, and he goes out and wins the MVP. Now he walks into spring training, and he's basically picked up where he left off. And I do want to caution this, because I've heard this since I was a kid. The guys who play winter ball are always going to be slightly ahead of everybody else, because there are guys coming to spring training. I don't want to say getting into shape, because I think that's a real 1960s thing. I don't think guys are working off fat from the offseason, but it is guys getting into like baseball everyday shape would be the way I would phrase it, seeing live pitching every single day. Ronnie Mauricio just saw live pitching. Ronnie Mauricio was just beating the crap out of live pitching. So I'm not saying that to diminish what he's done because what he's done has been awesome. He's hitting bombs every single day. And they're not just bombs. They're majestic bombs. And that's cool. And to see that from this young switch hitting, keep that in mind. He's a switch hitter, even though I think all of his home runs have been from the left side. Switch hitting stud. like. It excites me. It should excite all of us. But I do want to put that warning out there 
that he is ahead of everybody because of what he's done in Winter League. So now it leads to the next question, which is the question Pete Hoffman has had, the question I've had, the question every Met fan is asking. If this continues, can he make this team? Is there something Ronnie Mauricio can do, like hit 650 with 13 home runs over the course of the next month, where Buck Showalter and Billy Epler say, yes, you're on the team? It's very unlikely. But I want to give you a scenario. I want to lay out the role I think I could somehow imagine Ronnie Mauricio creating for himself if he continues to hit the crap out of the baseball. And that would be as a DH, because I don't know if the Mets are ready necessarily to tell a kid who has never played a minor league game at a position outside of shortstop. He did play eight games at third base in winter ball, but that wasn't the Mets doing it. That was Ronnie Mauricio saying, hey, I'm the winter league MVP. I'm going to go play eight games at third base. He hasn't done it. Now, one interesting thing from the Wednesday game, he pinch hit in the ninth inning. He hit that home run, stayed in the game. At second base. Granted, it was only one inning, but he stayed in the game at second base. But even if you start playing him at second base, even if you start playing him at third base, not the outfield, but second base, third base, shortstop, okay, well, what's his role? Like, how does he make the team? So, one area you could argue is does he put Luis Guillerme's job in jeopardy? Now, you may say, what? Why would, why would he put Luis Guillerme's job in jeopardy? Well, part of Luis's value is he's the only guy on this roster that could play shortstop. If Ronnie Mauricio's hitting the ball so well that you want to put him on this team as like a super utility DH guy to get his batting order, he could play shortstop. He could also serve as a backup for Lindor. Personally, I hate this idea. I'm just throwing out the possibilities. I don't take everything I'm saying right now as an endorsement. I'm thinking out loud. We're we're we're, we're brainstorming because to you, Pete. How does he make the team? Like, If Ronnie Mauricio keeps hitting the crap out of the ball, what role does he have on this team? So it's stupid, but, you know, we talk about Brett Beatty having an opportunity at third base. I know you said there's only eight games that he's played in the winter winter league, but Escobar supposedly is going to play left field in the World Baseball Classic. I mean, if that's an opportunity to find a way to get Escobar off of third base and give Mauricio some time there, if they if they can find a way to give him some actual playing time at third base, maybe that's an option. Because the one thing you don't want to do is either you, he has to play. If Mauricio's up, he's got to play. No? Right, right. You know what my problem with that is? And this is such a good problem, so it's a weird thing. Brett Beatty is the third baseman of the future. Are we not like sort of on board with that. He's the top third base prospect in all of baseball. He's also off to a very good start here in spring training. And while he could end up in left field, I acknowledge, or could end up as a DH, certainly. You always have to throw the DH possibility out there. Beatty is more in line to maybe take a third base job if you are going to move Escobar to left field or you're going to trade Eduardo Escobar. So is Ronnie Mauricio's long-term position even third base to begin with? I wonder, and it's not going to happen anytime soon, I would wonder tinkering with Mauricio in the outfield, that that may be his long-term solution. Now, it comes down to where are the Mets better defensively, with Mauricio at third and Beatty in left, or with Beatty at third and Mauricio in left? Now, obviously, we don't know the answer to this because we haven't seen Mauricio play the outfield, 
But for now, I still think of Beatty as the guy who's more in line. If someone's going to take a job away from Escobar, that it's Beatty, not Mauricio. Now, he's 6'3". Is that what he is or 6'2"? I can't remember. Is he 6'3"? 6'2", 6'3". Let's say 6'2 half then for the sake of this. No, in all seriousness, I've seen him listed on baseball reference as 6'3". 6'3", 222. He looks, watching him at the plate, man, he looks almost bigger than 6'3". He feels like he's Jordan Alvarez at the plate, doesn't he? Well, that's what they said. I saw that comp the other day, and he they said the swing is kind of similar. He dude, he reminds big. me of him. I didn't Hoff, I didn't even see the comp. Like I literally looked at his at bat and said, Jordan yes. Alvarez. I think it's obvious for all of us, right? Yeah, I, it definitely is, which is making me think of like, first of all, I've seen plenty of, of we look at Albert Poole, so I know it's not it's not a similar comp at all, but Poole started his career in the left field that he ended up being a first baseman. Miguel Cabrera played at third base. And then with the first base. So, like, I see Mauricio, again, it's a great idea of him to be a shortstop or whatever it is, wherever he's starting out right now. But that does not mean that is his end of career position. If that makes sense. The, 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 yeah, the bottom line is for Beatty and Mauricio, because even if they don't make the team right out of the gate, and, and it's a, a real long shot. I, I've laid that out on why. Forget about opening day. Well, what about May 5th? You know, what about June 1st? What about whenever these guys are hitting so much at the minor league level, you say, I got to get them up here. Like, I got to get these guys up here. And one of them has to play the outfield. I mean, you take your pick because the weakness of the Mets depth-wise is their outfield depth. They don't have a lot of it. Now, I know that over the last few years, it seems like there's been a lot of sticking infielders in the outfield whether it's Dominic Smith, whether it's even Jeff McNeil, even though Jeff does a solid job of it, there's been a lot of sticking infielders in the outfield, but that's going to have to continue because if Mauricio and Beatty are hitting their way to the major league level, Daniel Vogelback ain't going to the outfield, right? So certainly one of them can DH. DH is always an option if you're hitting, but one of these guys have to play the outfield. Now, as far as Escobar, because you brought it up, Escobar's playing the outfield this week. And Buck Showalter has said, well, he's doing it for Venezuela because Venezuela in the World Baseball Classic is going to play Eduardo Escobar in the outfield. I got to tell you, that drives me nuts. What drives me nuts is Buck Showalter should not be playing anywhere, anybody anywhere for a WBC team. Okay? I, I think that's ridiculous, right? Eduardo Escobar can go play left field in Venezuela. That's completely fine. I do not think the Mets should be using their spring training time to help Venezuela get ready for the World Baseball Classic. And that's not anti-Venezuela. I don't think we should be doing it for Team USA either. Buck Showalter should be putting guys in position because he's looking at them for the Mets. Now, if you want to tell me Buck is thinking of Escobar in the outfield as you thought of, Pete, okay, fine. Stick him in the outfield because you're thinking of sticking him in the outfield. Not because they're asking you for a favor. Like, I'm all for the WBC, and I'll watch a little bit of it, even though it doesn't have a pitch clock. But what are we, doing favors for teams now? What the hell is that about? I heard no. that. That pissed me off. That well, But see, to me, it, it's maybe Bucks using it as an opportunity of, like, I may need that. I may need to find a way to put Escobar somewhere That's else. fine, by the way. That's fine. Then say that. I don't want to hear I'm doing it for Venezuela. What? Come on. 
Yeah, but he doesn't want to play his cards. He doesn't want to play his hand fully either. He doesn't want to get that narrative out there. If you say it's Venezuela as an excuse, if it's a if it's something he's toying around, that's not a question he has to answer just now. I think I've always said this about position changes. This is the time of year to stick guys in positions they're not familiar with. I do I do not understand in the case of Beatty and Mauricio specifically why I wouldn't try them in left field now. It's spring training. It, this is not a regular season game against the Marlins where Mauricio drops a ball in left field and it's the lead story on Tiki and Tierney. Okay, that's that's not the case. This is spring training. He, he can go drop five balls in left field. I, I would like to see the Mets do that. I would like every team to do that. Like, this is where you're supposed to kind of play around. So in Mauricio's case, it's great that he's hitting. It's great that he's having a big camp. Until you start to see him play other positions, it's tough to believe the Mets are going to take him north. But DH is the thing to keep in mind. Because right now, when you look at the positions that are set on this team, obviously first base, second base, shortstop, to a degree, third base, and Obedi can challenge it. Left field mostly, center field, right field. We know the catching situation. You get the DH, and yeah, Vogelbach hits right-handed pitching. I've always defended him. And we've talked about the issues on, well, who's going to be the right-to-face lefties? The Darren Ruff question, who's MIA? Vientos has had some good at-bats. Could Ronnie Mauricio push his way into the DH discussion? So the one thing I was trying to find out over the last few days is Mauricio as a righty versus Mauricio as a lefty. Now, I can't find his splits from winter ball because that's where he exploded. I looked at his splits from last year at AA. I've looked at his splits throughout his career, even read his scouting report. The scouting report on Mauricio is that he actually makes more contact from the left side but has more power from the right side, which is actually pretty scintillating when you think about the bombs he's been hitting from the left side. And I'm telling you that the scouting report on him is, well, he actually has more power from the right side. Dude, what is it, 450, 413, 413, all three home runs? Like, they've all been over 400 feet. It's been nasty. Bombs. Bombs. No, dude's hitting bombs. So I wonder if DH can be the spot that Mauricio pushes. Because that isn't really set in stone. It just isn't. And Vogelback is so unplayable against left-handed pitching that wouldn't it be cool in this perfect world where Mauricio's bursting onto the scene where you could have a switch hitter as your DH? So you're not thinking platoon immediately when there's a pitching change? Because that's the spot the Mets are in right now at DH. Whether it's a Vogelbach rough platoon or a Vogelbach Vientos platoon, Pete, seventh inning, lefties on the mound. Vogelbach's coming out of the game. Now, he's not facing a lefty. He is uncompetitive against left-handed pitching. And by the way, vice versa, not that Vientos is uncompetitive or Ruff is uncompetitive, but you're going to use Vogelbach. So I'm thinking about that. Like That's to me, to me. This is just me speaking. I don't know what Billy Epler and Buck Showalter are thinking. I think DH would be the place where we're more Mauricio can push it maybe the most. With that being said, it's still a very much outside shot that despite this early power surge, he's going to make this team. See, the thing about this is that I, I hate that the DH is like a logjam. 
like we're we're putting it as which bat we we're actually using it like the traditional DH where we don't want someone who actually can play the field. We just want it as a bat. Like we're not. This is not like a rest day. This is not Alonzo's going to get a lot of DH at bats there. It's going to be Vogelback or Ruff or whomever. And the thing is, Mauricio makes a ton of sense, but they're never going to do that. You know that it sucks. They're not going to do it on opening day. Okay, so there's two discussions here. There's what we want to see happen with the initial 26-man roster, and then there's, well, what happens if it's the middle of May? What happens if Daniel Vogelbach is not hitting the cover off the ball? What happens if no one steps up as the right-handed part of the platoon? Like, Ronnie Mauricio and Brett Beatty, even if they don't make the team right out of the gate, they're leaving an impression early on. And if they continue that at AAA and AA respectively, assuming Mauricio goes to AA, I, I would guess Ronnie would go to AAA because he was at AA last year. If those guys get off to really good starts, they're going to push the issue. So I'm not necessarily talking only about making the team right now. A lot of it is what is their role this year? Because those are two guys on the doorstep. Brett Beatty is obviously on the doorstep. We saw him at the major league level last year. I'm not even discussing Alvarez because it's obvious. Alvarez needs to catch. That's what Billy Epler has told us. That could change, and he could become part of the DH mix. But he's got to catch. He's got to get to their comfort level where they're okay with him catching at the major league level. But Mauricio could push the DH spot because he doesn't have a position right now that's open. Obviously, there could be an injury. Lindor could get hurt. And then we may all be screaming, yeah, we love Guillaume, call up Mauricio, let the guy cook for a month. So I am thinking more in terms of May, June, these guys forced the issue. How are they getting at bats? I will say this, Pete, long term, we talk about is Beatty the future third baseman? Who's the future left fielder? The DH spot could just be that area where everybody gets a rest day. Like that, it could very well turn into that kind of spot. I think right now the DH spot is they've got this left-handed hitter who has a position, but his position is that of the Mets' best player in Pete Alonso and Vogelbach, who hits righties well enough to where it's beneficial to have his bat in the lineup. So he's a DH because he ain't playing first base. So I think that's part of why they're in the spot they're in right now at that position. You know, I mean, the one thing is, if you can bring find a way to get Mauricio up here, by the way, it would solve a bunch of issues because – it would make sense then not to have, uh, you know, have 13 pitchers, 13 position players. It makes there's more flexibility there because we're always talking about like Guillerme is that defensive replacement, right? Vogelback comes off the bench. And like you said, like if you can have Mauricio as the everyday DH and he can go left or right, it doesn't make a difference. And that, that, that makes it justifiable where you don't need extra batters, extra position players. But the other question, too, is you said Mauricio, you think he should play AAA, but what if he goes back to AA? Does that mean that we're going to stunt him again? Not stunt the growth, but, like, does that mean he can't automatically make the jump no. to Major League? I hate that, no. that debate, but a lot of people can't stand that. It's got to go to AAA first before it goes there. It shouldn't matter. Because we've seen so many guys go right from double A to the majors. I think Michael Harris did that last year with Atlanta where he went straight from double A to the majors. So it it shouldn't be that big of a deal. But Mauricio has been great. And hopefully he keeps this going. Same thing with Beatty. I, I don't want to ignore the fact that Brett Beatty's also off to a really good start. Because I think he's the guy who coming into spring training we looked at and said, all right, he's got the best chance to make a push to make this roster. I'm still a little Castro guy, though. Because I think 
<laughs> you know, watching spring training early on, the pitch clock has gotten all the attention. We talked all about it on WFAN. You know, you guys talked about it on Monday. I talked about it on Monday. Very big deal. And even to this day, like we're four or five days into spring training. That's a topic that's not going to go away because people have an opinion on it, even though most people love it, even though you, Pete, for whatever reason, hate it. But I'm not bringing that up. My point is stolen bases are way up. Like stolen bases are way, way, way up. The stolen base percentage is way up. The attempts and steals are way up. So knowing that that's probably going to be a thing, A, importance on catcher. Let's start with that because you're also defending this. You know, guys are running on you. So I think that for the first time in a long time, we're going to see a pushback. For a while, catching was all about your arm behind the plate. That would be the number one stat you would look at if you were looking at any stat would be, does he throw out base runners? The biggest knock on Mike Piazza was throwing out base runners. What kind of pitch framer was Mike Piazza? I have no idea. I know he was good at blocking balls in the dirt. Truthfully, he was not good at throwing runners out. He wasn't. And that's kind of gone away over the last five to 10 years because guys don't run that much. So throwing guys out didn't matter as much. What mattered was stealing strikes. And it still does matter. Pitch framing is going to matter until we have a robo on. But all of a sudden, it's going to start to matter again if you're throwing out 35% of base stealers as opposed to 17% of base stealers because we're going to see more base running. A part of why... I really like the idea of Lo Castro making this team is because of that. You know, Mets play a close game late in the ball game. I want Lo Castro on base to basically steal second base immediately. There's going to be a lot of situations where that's going to make sense. Obviously, Mauricio, Beatty, it's more appealing. They're the future. We'd love to see them make the team. Totally get that. Not saying I don't, but I, I think the likes of LaCastro becomes more valuable. Terrence Gore from last year becomes more valuable because I think that stolen bases are going to be a weapon and you don't want to be left behind with guys that aren't stealing bases. Keep an eye on that. That is one thing I've definitely noticed in the first five days of spring training. The pitch clock is going to take up most of the attention because it's extreme. I mean, you look at these times of games, it's, it really is crazy. I mean, these games are 220, 230, 215. I saw a game the other day. It was 205. Like, 205. Like, what, what is this, 1961? What the hell is happening? And then if a game's over three hours, my new reaction is, wow, what a long game. I mean, meanwhile, that was the average last year. Uh, the other thing, I don't know if anyone's freaking out about it, so maybe I'm talking to nobody when I say this. Jose Quintana made his first start as a New York Met in spring training and got his ass kicked. There's no defending it. He was awful. So here's my rule of thumb with bad spring training starts. Number one, is he healthy? Because he come out of the start feeling okay. And yes, a little check mark there. Jose Quintana talked about what went wrong, but there was no, my elbow was sore. My arm is sore. I need an MRI. My velocity's down. So check number one, okay, he's fine, healthy. Healthy. Check number two is when he makes his second start and third start, is he going to get his ass kicked again? Because obviously if that turns into a trend, then you start to get 
not necessarily worry based on performance, but it goes back to the first thing I said. You start to get worried about health. I'm not there yet with Jose Quintana. He had one bad game. I admit, you have a second bad game? Okay, you're a little more worried. A third bad game? Now you start to panic. Quintana last year, and this is a part of why I was so excited about that signing and why I think it's going to to work out better than necessarily what Taiwan Walker hit was last year and the year before that. I'm enamored by what he did down the stretch. And it started slightly before the Pirates traded him to the St. Louis Cardinals. His last two starts he made with the Pittsburgh Pirates, he put seven scoreless innings and five and two-thirds scoreless innings. So he left the Pirates with 12 and two-thirds scoreless innings. He then goes to St. Louis in the middle of a pennant race, and here are his starts. Listen to what this guy did. Six innings, one run. Six innings, two runs. Five innings, two runs. There's a couple of duds in here. Two and two-thirds, four runs. Five innings, four runs. Then it gets back to good. Four and two-thirds, two runs. Five innings, one run. Five and two-thirds, one run. Eight innings, no runs. And you know why I remember that eight-inning no-run game? It was a one-nothing game, Pete. I watched it because I picked him up in the fantasy playoffs. Yeah, he gave me eight scoreless innings. I was so pumped. It didn't help me. I lost anyway. Six and two-thirds, zero runs. Five innings, one run, and then three scoreless innings as a postseason tune-up. He was tremendous. I mean, he was great. Like, not just from that last game with the Pirates, but then in the postseason. And then he starts game one of the wild card series against the Phillies and goes five and a third inning, zero runs. Pitched the shutout in the playoffs against the Phillies. He was so brilliant in the second half of the season. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's just going to pick up where he left off, but that's what really helped enamor me to Quintana. It just in a pennant race trade deadline as good as it gets. So I know it's still his first start, like you said, and people still getting used to the pitch clock, but didn't he kind of say that he felt a little rushed? He felt a little uneasy with the pitch clock. He did kind of make, I thought he made a comment about that. Yeah, he did. And that's another reason why I wouldn't care. Because, sure, I mean, it's your first start with it. I totally respect that. I, I, I get that. And I think that everyone's going to have to make an adjustment. We talked about it last time on the Rico that Pete Alonso takes forever, apparently, which is not something I even noticed as a Met fan over the last four years. Shame on me. Never noticed that. And Pete Alonso had a home run on his first at-bat. He's still, still making an adjustment, but he had success. Jose Quintana's making a start. He's in trouble right from the get-go. Now he's thinking about, oh, my God, I got to make a pitch now. And, and, oh, by the way, I'm working with a new catcher, right? I'm I'm learning these guys. So you would think that maybe the Mets are going to have more of an adjustment because you've got Quintana learning new catchers. You've got Sanga learning new everything. I mean, Kodai Sanga is going to really have to deal with this. Verlander and Scherzer, obviously Scherzer's been here. Verlander, he's a pro, but maybe it'll affect him. He's going to make his first start over the weekend. We'll see. So, yeah, I could see how that would be a negative effect. But here's the beautiful thing. You're going to make five, six spring training starts. You're going to get a lot of time to get these kinks out. But I would understand it's normal that it's something new. It's something different. It's not just going to click right away. It's going to affect each guy differently. So, yeah, totally get it. 
he did say it. Hopefully it doesn't affect him in his second start. No, I listen. And if it, it may take till the opening day for him to get it right. I mean, we make it sound like it's that, that easy, but like, again, I keep on saying, I keep on thinking about, and I don't want to make it about the pitch clock, but I keep on thinking in a situation, a guy might just go back to his normal habits. A guy might take a deep breath and forget to get back in the box. Just have a brain fart. Like things are going to happen. It's going to, there's going to be pressure built situations that they're not always prepared for. Yeah. One thing to keep an eye on Luis Severino on the Yankee side of things was trying out the new pitch com where the pitcher can tell the catcher what they want to throw. And Severino used it and after the game said, I think this is the greatest invention in the history of baseball because he really liked the control of, hey, I'm not going to shake you off five times. There's a pitch clock. I'm just going to tell you. I'm going to hit my belt buckle and I'm going to tell you the exact pitch I'm going to throw. So I don't know. Maybe more, maybe more players have to try that out. Hey, it's spring training for everybody, man. You got to figure yeah. out what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, well, wait for that belt buckle not to work, and then they have to have a timeout to fix the belt buckle, change the belt buckle. I mean, listen, I I like it, but I got to be honest. I'm surprised you're not going to go less digital now. Like, you got to get the – you can't mess around with the signs. If the, if the hat's not working, if the, the guy's got to click the button, I, isn't it quicker just to get the signs down? Yeah, it, it it's interesting. So, Pitchcom last year, Chris Bassett, how many times – or not just Chris Bassett, but other pitchers – where pitch comp caused the game to take longer because, oh, wait, I can't hear you. Let's do the signs again. Oh, wait, I can't hear you. Let's do the signs again. Now you don't have an option. You're just going to throw a freaking pitch, which leads to advantage hitter. The pitcher is throwing a pitch they don't want to throw. Whatever. Get over it and figure it out. That's my advice. (laughs) And and I, I noticed that, and I mentioned this on the afternoon show, that the Mets spring training game on Monday was aired on ESPN and it was the highest rated spring training game in seven years and the highest rated spring training game since like a prime time spring training game. This was a Monday at one o'clock. I don't think it was the hype for the Mets. I think it was the rules and that doesn't mean it's a compliment to the rules. That's not me saying, Oh, you see, everybody loves the pitch. Like, no, it's people being intrigued by it. I do. I think what other reason would there be for Mets Cardinals on a Monday afternoon to be the highest rated spring training game in seven years? I mean, maybe it's because people love Pete Alonso and he really is the next MVP of uh, or the next (laughs) face of baseball. That's got to be it. Uh, We got a bunch of emails, so I figured we would spend a good amount of today's pod responding a, a variety of questions. And we always appreciate it when you email the pod at the Rico B at gmail.com. So we'll start off with Frank. Frank writes, Evan Hoff, huge fan of the show. Didn't I say I would stop reading that kind of stuff? We don't need compliments, but we appreciate it, Frank. I I know this is part of the Met offseason and it's old news, but I still can't understand the catcher transactions. Why did we sign Narvaez and pay all that money for McCann to play elsewhere and also block our stud prospect for potentially two years? a Nito extension, and I believe Narvaez has a player option on the second year. Help me love these moves. LOL. All right. I'll give you my answer to this. First of all, Tomas Nito is the definition of a backup catcher. And there's nothing wrong with that. He is the quintessential backup catcher. He's really solid defensively. 
He's got a great relationship with everybody. He can't really hit, though every once in a while he'll accidentally against a lefty hit a double up the alley. And he's funny. He he just everything, all those qualities are just labeled perfect backup catchers. Let's put him to the side. He, he should be here for a while, and there's nothing wrong with that. You need a backup catcher. Then you get to Omar Narvaez. I think Omar Narvaez is here for one, two, three different reasons. Number one, a tutor for Francisco Alvarez. I think that's a huge factor in this. Narvaez has become, uh, he's developed, I give him credit, into a much better pitch framing catcher over the last couple of years. Uh, He's a countryman of Francisco Alvarez. That seems like a kind of a dopey stereotype. Ooh, they're from the same country. They must have a great relationship. Trust me. There's plenty of Americans I can't stand. So, but I throw it out there because it's a thing. Uh, And they just don't think, they do not think, based on this move and based on their comments, as much as I may hate it and Pete may hate it and Frank may hate it, they don't think Alvarez is ready. Period. They don't think he's ready to carry a catching load. They just, they don't. And so for a team that's trying to win a championship, and with a team with a very veteran pitching rotation, they put a premium on defense, and they put a premium on not just Evans, but Narvaez is a left-hand hitter. So he is that platoon partner for Nito when you're thinking about offense because Narvaez can hit right-handed pitching. I mentioned Nito will occasionally run into an RBI double against the lefty. So the platoon fits. They're both sturdy defensive players. And I think they look at Narvaez as an excellent teacher for Francisco Alvarez, who they don't think is ready to catch the majority of games at the major league level. That's your answer. I'm not sure that's going to make Frank happy, though, Pete. Can I give you something that makes Frank happy or should make Frank happy? The reality is, is Narvaez is not – I'm saying uh, it's Narvaez. I'm saying it wrong. Narvaez. There you go. Narvaez. There we go. He is not here long term. So look what they did with James McCann. They got rid of him if when time came to. I don't think they're planning on doing that right away with Omar. Could make that easier, Omar. But uh, th- there's always that possibility. If when Francisco Alvarez is ready, if they have too many catchers, either they suit them up, and again, DH is still a possibility for Alvarez, or they could just trade away Novaez. Or they could cut yeah. it. Like that, that, that's something, maybe that's not going to happen this year, but that's always next year if they pick up his option. Yeah, I wouldn't worry about 2024. We'll figure out 2024, but in 2023, they don't think he's ready. I mean, the Mets can't be more honest about it. They do not think he's ready defensively to catch this staff the majority of the time. Will there come a point where they're confident enough for him to catch once or twice a week and DH the rest of the time? Maybe. That was what I laid out at the beginning of this offseason as, kind of my vision for Francisco Alvarez, where he was never going to be the full-time catcher, at least in my eyes. I thought, he catches half the time, he DHs half the time, let's go. The Mets don't even have that confidence at this I, point. I, and, I, and I told you, that if there's an injury early on, Mikel Perez is coming up, not, not Francisco Alvarez. No, I mean, you're right, because they don't have the confidence in Alvarez catching. It's not going to change because there's an injury. Ed Flood writes, I love the pitch clock. The one thing I want to say is shouldn't they have some time to gather themselves if they have to jump out of the box after falling or avoiding a pitch like Pete had to on Tuesday afternoon? Should have time to take your breath and gather yourself. Otherwise, I love it. 
Yeah, I, I think there's going to be, and that's fair for that. I think there's going to be examples that you can absolutely come up with where you say, eh, can you give him an extra timeout? Can you let, that guy almost got drilled in the head. Do we really need to force him to jump back in the batter's box within five seconds? Because think about it. Guy already used his timeout, right? Already used his timeout. And on the third pitch, a fastball buzzes him by the head. Doesn't hit him, buzzes him. Catcher immediately throws the ball back to the pitcher. The clock will restart as soon as that ball is thrown back to the pitcher. That poor son of a bitch who just got dusted has to get his ass up and get right back in that box immediately. I think that's a very fair point by Ed. And by the way, that kind of discourse on the pitch clock, totally understandable. Like, I, I get that. I think that's that's a great example. I, maybe we can almost give an umpire's discretion, if you will, where the umpire can say, all right, hold on, timeout, 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 timeout. Like the umpire is calling a timeout. Like the umpire is saying, timeout is on me. Give me a second. I don't know, just an idea. But I see that. I, I can see how that would be an issue. It's kind of like when a foul ball goes off a, a catch or whatever, and the, the the umpire is timed out, walks the ball out to the pitcher, stuff like that, it gives them a couple seconds. So I guess that, that they can still do that, right? Or is that illegal too? Can they, when a foul well, ball catcher? Yeah, because it's not illegal because the umpire is not throwing the ball back to the pitcher. And once he does that, like the clock is on. So I would think, and look, we're all figuring this out together. So I'm admitting I haven't seen enough yet. I've watched two spring training games barely, you know? I, I would think that the umpire can kind of kill some time. And then before he throws the ball back, like I've even heard the idea, well, the catcher can kill some time. The catcher doesn't have to throw the ball back immediately. You can Mackie Sasser the whole thing where you're like, oh, hold on, about to throw it, about to throw it, about to throw it. Okay, I'm going to throw it. Wait, hold on. Okay, now I'm throwing it. There's gonna be like a three second rule on that. Like if you if you don't throw the ball in three seconds, you get you get a ball. I don't know something ridiculous. <laughs> uh, this is from Michael Ambrose, loyal listener of the Rico and Carton and Roberts. I love both, especially the Rico. That's right. I'll tell Craig that. I have standing room only tickets for the Mets home opener. Do you have any suggestions of places to stand and watch the game at City? Thanks for any input you have. I actually do have advice. The problem is, there's going to be a lot of people listening to this who buy standing room tickets, and they're all going to fight to go to where I tell them to go. I'm just kidding. So I sit in the 300s on the sides outside the club, the Piazza Club. There's like standing room. There's, you know, like a table in that last row. I think that's a great view. You try to get as close to behind home plate as you can. You're not on the highest level. And you could kind of see the game from there. Plus, they have TV set up. I think that's a real cool spot to watch the game. Uh, also, in the upper level, kind of the same thing. I, I'm a behind the home plate kind of guy. So, to me, you could put me upstairs. I'd rather sit upstairs in the upper deck behind home plate than feel level down the third baseline. To me, it's not even close. I'd rather be behind home plate. So my answers are always going to be partial to that. If you disagree, totally fine. Like, don't listen to me. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, so I would say, I'd say it's about 325 and higher. And then like 312 and lower 
that are the outskirts of the Piazza Club, and they're standing room all the way on those edges. And that's where I would try to sit. That's my advice. Or stand, not sit, stand. That's a hot ticket, though, opening day. I was I was looking at it the other day. Not that I'm going to sell my tickets. I'm not. But I always am fascinated by the resale market. And it is hot. Like, the get-in price for opening day, just to get in, is $110. And then to sit in halfway decent seats is really expensive. So it's a red, red, red hot ticket. Totally get why. I mean, it's opening day 2023, baby. We're excited. This is from Dustin. Close your ears, Pete. This may offend you. I love the pitch clock with a capital L. Oh, wait. No, open your ears, Pete. He's about to defend you. <laughs> I, okay, I got that let's wrong. Go. <laughs> I love the pitch clock with a capital L, but you can't argue Hoffman has a terrific point on the playoff implications, umpire discretion, replay implications, etc. Is the guy a moron for not getting back in the box? Maybe, but what if it's close and there's intent? What is the rule? Is it one foot in the box? Is it both feet? Are we really going to have a replay review where we have the clock on one half of the TV and a slow-mo video is foot, and if it made it across the line in time? There is major implications here, and you are naive to think that something very controversial will not happen in the postseason without the batter pitcher being a moron, as you describe. I love the clock, as I said, but would wholeheartedly support removing it for the postseason. The game should still move along with the players being used to it for 162. Love the show and the podcast. Keep up the good work. All right. Let's address this. So my interpretations of this, uh, of this eight-second rule is that the batter not only needs to have both feet in the box, he needs to be set. Like, he needs to be ready to have the pitch delivered. I wonder if umpires are going to be a little bit more lenient on that. Like, if you're in the box, I don't think your eyes have to be pointed at the pitcher necessarily. I think if you're in the box, that's enough. That's fine. Because what argument I've heard, and it's a fair one, is screw the batter having to get in by eight seconds. The pitcher can pitch. The pitcher can pitch at eight seconds. And if the batter's not in the box, too bad. Throw a strike. And I, and I kind of get that. You know, tell the pitcher, you are allowed to pitch at the eight-second mark. It's up to that batter to get in there. And then you've eliminated the automatic strike because it's not an automatic strike. The pitcher has to throw a pitch. I, I also, maybe my word choice is not fair to call someone a moron. Maybe that's a little too harsh. Maybe. But I really don't think after 162 games of this that we are going to have playoff implications. I, I just disagree with that. I disagree with this thought that come playoff time, there's going to be miscues. There's not. Like, you want to tell me there'll be some things, there'll be an automatic strike in April, there'll be a violation in May. I think by the time we're talking about October, it's gone. Because I don't think at that point it's going to be that crazy for a pitcher to throw the ball within 15 seconds or for a batter to get in the box by eight seconds. So we, we in fairness to Dustin, Hoff, and myself, I guess we have to table this. I have to write this down, and we'll see if there's a violation in October. If there is, I'll take my L. And if there isn't, apologize. All of you. 
Here's the thing, though, and, and, and I appreciate Dustin defending me for the most part because, like, for example, we could sit there. We, this, there's so many different scenarios that you can just – you don't really know that are going to take place. But for, here's one that's stupid. Guy fouls off a couple pitches early on in that bat, takes his time out, whatever. Okay, fine. It's a 10-pitch at bat like Mookie Wilson, and it's a, really, it's a crunch time situation. He's already used a timeout. But he fouls off another pitch, and he just mindlessly goes to take a timeout or doesn't get in there, whatever, takes an extra breath. Like, these things are – it's like a slip of the brain because you're right. At 162 games, you should have figured this out by now. But also, you're human too. Like, sometimes you're just like, I just need a moment. And it, I know it's, it feels like six seconds enough to get into the box. But maybe you just feel like you need to slow it down. And maybe you do ask your timeout, and then it'll grant it. What's going to happen then? Like, get get in there. Well, you only have one timeout. <laughs> I know. So. But you make, you make it sound so simple, though. Again, this is not going to really be effective until the playoffs. That 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 is the big thing. The playoffs are going to be the, the big change. That That's what we're going to see at the most, I think. I, mean, I, I think that as much as we love the playoffs and it's so intense, I don't think the intensity is going to make you forget what you've just done for 162 games that, that you've just experienced. You know, you had the 11 pitch at bat in the middle of June and it was crazy. And then you got your ass back in the box. Cause you knew I can't have that automatic strike three. We did get a lot of emails about the pitch clock. So that's why I we're, we're still talking about it. Cause it, I, it resonates with people. I think there's a lot of people that like it. I think most people like it, but there are people who like it, but are bringing up, some fair concerns that they have about it. I don't necessarily think the October thing one, I, I like, I don't, I just don't buy it, but some of the other things I think are completely fair. Uh, here's what Justin had to say. I agree with all of Evan's takes on the pitch clock. <laughs> well, Pete, it's not like I'm just picking the ones that agree with me. That last well, guy agree with you. First of all, they like you. Okay. It's the Evan Roberts <laughs> podcast. So I understand and respect it. Okay. It's nothing to do with that. I agree with all of Evan's takes on the pitch clock. No drama will be lost. The games are too long, and many younger fans find the games boring because there's not enough action. This was a necessary change. I listened to the Rico, and I was curious if you believe the NBA shot clock is a good analogy for the pitch clock. Although a long time ago, I bet when the shot clock was introduced, many thought it would change the game of basketball. But I think we could all agree that the shot clock is necessary as you cannot have teams taking forever to take a shot. Similarly, pitchers should not be able to take forever to throw the ball and batters should not take forever to get ready to hit the shot clock right above the basket, right in your face yet, but yet it's invisible. I think the pledge clock will also become invisible over time. It'll be there, but you won't even notice it. Curious about your thoughts. I don't, it's so long ago, the shot clock, it's obviously before our time. I can't tell you what people were thinking. I will say this, and I, I still find this so hard to believe that the NBA instituted the shot clock and it took a million years for college basketball to like college basketball didn't have a shot clock in the eighties. Think about that in the early eighties. I, I for one cannot imagine basketball without a shot clock. I don't think that playing the four corners the way Dean Smith did is necessarily the same as a pitcher taking way too much time in between pitches. Because I think with the shot clock, or in the case of the example I'm using where North Carolina tried to basically 
never give you another opportunity. They would try to milk as much time as possible. There was a clear advantage to doing that. I don't think pitchers have gained a clear advantage from taking that much time. Like That's not my issue. I think it was just bad for us. I think it was bad for viewers. I think it was bad for even diehard baseball fans like myself. So I don't think it's the same from that regard. Like I don't think there was a competitive edge that we're trying to fix. But in terms of how people reacted to it, maybe. I don't know what basketball fans said or even college basketball fans said when they finally added the shot clock. Josh writes, uh, hey, guys, big fan. Evan, I know you score Mets games that you go to. Any chance you know the team's record when you're in attendance? (laughs) Do I know the record? Believe it or not, I don't. That's one thing I do not keep track of. But what I have kept track of is how many games I've been to and how many games I've scored. So I could give you a number. I could actually tell you if I added up my documents. So I'm not doing it on today's Rico. I apologize. We don't be on the next Rico. I could tell you the number. And so I don't know if anybody cares. But you know what? Ah, It's the Rico. Whatever. I'll give you the number the next time we do a Rico, the Sunday night into Monday morning podcast. I'll give you the total number of Met games I've scored. I could even give you a number of games I've been to. Is that what he was asking? Games I've been to, right? Not games I've scored. He wants to know He wants to know the record that w- when you've gone to a game, what is the Mets record? Yeah, that one, I could find out it would take forever because I, I have the dates of every game I've been to, but I'd literally have to just go win-loss, win-loss. So that one I can't tell you, but I can tell you how many Met games I've been to, and I think I could tell you how many games I've scored. So those are the two numbers I'll give you on on the next Rico. See, Ev, you think that that's like a ridiculous thing to talk about, but this is why the Rico Bronya has been made for stuff like that. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Uh, Benji writes, I love the pot, especially ripping Pete the shreds over the pitch clock. Uh, I'm you know, sorry. That's what he wrote. That's ridiculous. Is this a hate? Is this all just hate hate mail about me? Love Nobody hates hate you. Nobody hates you. They disagree <laughs> with you. There's a big difference between that. Not one person has said they hate Pete Hawkins. They just disagree with you. Benji, I'm taking it personal. I totally agree with you that the players absolutely abused our beautiful sport, which led us to the institution of the clock. They absolutely did it to themselves, and I 100% agree that something needed to be done to restore the game. By the way, before I continue, do you not agree with that? That basic statement, that premise that they did this. This is the player's fault. They abused the time in between pitches to the point where we needed to have legislation. Yes, I think someone compared the Javi Baez, not Javi Baez, um, Pedro Baez. I think they showed like him throwing one pitch compared to someone having three outs in an inning, and they it was it was ridiculous that they no, took no, no, so I'll, long. I will tell you exactly what it was. You you got the story half right. So there's a clip. I think Barstool put it out. Great job by them of the time between pitches Pedro Baez had to David Ross in the NLCS, and in that time. How many inside the park home runs did Jose Altuve have? They show an Altuve inside the park home run and keep replaying it to see how many of them are there before Baez throws a pitch. And the answer is seven. (laughs) (laughs) 
Seven, oh. seven inside the park home runs. I mean, How it's a fast was Altuve running? He's very fast. He's very, very <laughs> fast. And Baez is very, very slow. Uh, but here's Benji's point. It's actually not about the pitch clock. He just wanted to, to, to take a shot at you. Do you think the same logic should apply to the shift ban? It bothers me to know when the players never change their approach against the shift. You mentioned Vogie getting a couple of hits to the right side, and that seems like a similar abuse. Baseball was never intended to be a power all-or-nothing sport, just like it was never intended to have a clock. Yet baseball kind of just threw up their arms and banned the shift in favor of these lumbering lefties. They abused the game, but they got rewarded. The Familias and Nomars abused and are now punished. Reward the McNeils, not the Gallows. Your thoughts? I, I I get what you're saying, and in theory, I don't like the shift ban. I don't like it in theory. But now I have to be fair about what the results are, and I have to be fair about what it does to the game. And if it raises batting averages, which has been going down steadily for a long time, is that bad for the game? I mean, you tell me. Uh, was it bad for the game as a viewer to see a ball ripped in the right field and then, oh, look, there's the third baseman playing in short right? By the way, everyone should answer this how they want. I'm asking you the questions to decide for yourself. I'll give you my opinions. Was it bad for the game when there was a line drive up the middle that we all assumed was a base hit and the shortstop was standing right there? I don't know if that was bad for the game, but it sucked. Like, it was frustrating. Like, I didn't love it. So my my issue with the shift ban is I don't like the theory of the shift ban. I don't like the fact that we have to do this. But the ramifications may be good. Like the game may be better. It may be better to see left-hand hitters get those kinds of singles that we saw 20 years ago and for there to be more base hits in the game. That may be a good thing because I don't know what you can do I have one idea, and it's not my idea. Ernie Acosta, our former producer of the Midday Show, had the idea, so I'll give him credit. But what can you do to say, stop swinging for the fences? What can you do? You can't tell people to have a different approach, but what can you legislate that makes guys not swing for the fences? And the idea Ernie always had was make ballparks bigger. You know, if it's 480 to center field, trust me, you ain't swinging for the fences. You're not, because you can hit it 430, and it's run down by the center fielder. I think for a myriad of reasons, that will never happen. I don't think we're ever going to go back to, like, the old polo grounds or the old Yankee Stadium where you could hit the ball 500 feet. But Ernie's right. A, it'd be more exciting because we'd have more doubles and triples, which is, I think, one of the most exciting things in baseball. And you would somehow convince some sluggers that you can't swing for the fences. You can't swing for the fences if it's 450 away. But that's never going to happen. So I don't like the theory of the shift ban, but I am willing to admit that the results may be a net positive for the game of baseball. So deep thought conversation, maybe not for today, but... If the impact of the shift is that much where it does open up and batting averages start to go, you know, skew and trend upwards, how would you take this, this, I guess, generation of shift baseball and affect that for Hall of Famers? I don't know. Every era is different. You know, it's, it's, 
you almost have to look at every era in its own prism. I love that we compare players from the 70s to the 2000s, the 2000s to the 2020s. I I don't know. I, I think we just have to look at it on its own. This guy's very upset with me, so Pete will be very happy. Uh, his name is Noah, and it's our final Rico email. And, of course, you could email us to RicoB at gmail.com. He's so mad he won't call me by my name. He says, hello, sir. Hello, sir. On the pitch clock debate, I watched over the weekend and I watched today. I hate the pitch clock. It takes away the one thing that makes baseball different from the other major sports. It had no clock. Its pace was set entirely by its pitcher and its hitter. Now its pace is dictated from the outside. In addition to messing with the fundamental character of the game, it actually feels different to me when I watch it. There's a sense of tension as the clock gets to zero. Maybe some people like that tension. For me, one of the central appeals of baseball is we did uh, – hold on. For me, one of the central appeals of baseball has always been that it didn't have it. But I want to respond to another point parroted not just by you, but pretty much everyone who supports the pitch clock, and that's that the game is much longer now than it used to be. I hear folks ask, do you really enjoy a a three-and-a-half-hour game? First of all, yes. Second of all, that's not how long games are. In 2022, the average game length was three hours and six minutes. In 2020, it was three hours and six minutes. In 2016, it was three hours and four minutes. In 2013, it was three hours and four minutes. So over the last 10 years, it basically hasn't changed. Go back a little further and you see a little shorter of a game. In 2009, it was 255. In 2005, it was 245. Then again, in the year 2000, it was 301, just five minutes shorter than it was last year. So when people complain that the length of the game has gotten out of control in recent years, I have to ask the question, what the bleep are you talking about? How about that? How about that? He came after us. First of all, I don't think those numbers are accurate. Um, And I'm going to give you the numbers because I think it's very important to have the accurate numbers. I had it up on my tablet. Now I lost it. Um. Don't you uh, say something about uh, how right he is while I find the uh, actual well, he, numbers? He 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 is right if those numbers are correct. That would make sense that um that we're wrong. But I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, listen, I, I appreciate the fact that he's there is a major difference in a half hour game. Like the the fact that the game is three oh five, he says, and now they're two thirty. I mean, that is a, that is a huge difference and attention span today is totally different, especially with kids. And that's what that's what baseball's trying to skew to is is a younger generation. So I understand I like the fact that there was no time limit in baseball or there's no time at all. But I do expect respect that they're yeah. trying to to skew younger. All right. So here are the numbers. He he is right about one thing and that is over the last 10 years, baseball has been a long game. And I, I don't think I've ever disputed that that this started in the last decade. Like, this is not something that started in 2019. He's right, or 2018. It's It's been a over three-hour game every year since 2013. And it's varied between three hours and four minutes, three hours and seven minutes, three hours, three hours and eight minutes. The longest it was was actually 2021, where it was three hours and 11 minutes. 
Okay. And last year was three hours and six minutes, but where he is wrong is that before that, before that kind of consistent decade we've just had in 2011, it was 256. In 2009, it was 255. In 2005, it was two hours and 49 minutes. Uh, There was a 2000. He's right. It was three hours. I think the difference, though, to answer that is all the offense that was being scored. Like, I think the reason those games were longer was very different than the length of game from this past year where we weren't seeing a lot of offense. Uh, 1999, 257. 1998, 252. Like you had it kind of sitting in that 250 range. Uh, then you go into the 80s and it goes even 245, 239 in 1984. So I don't think I've ever said that incorrectly. Uh, maybe he's interpreted that wrong. But yeah, the last decade is really where this started. That's why a couple of days ago, and I haven't said this on the Rico, but I certainly said it on the uh, afternoon show is I went back through some big moments in baseball history, those drama-filled moments, to look at the time in between pitches. And I didn't just do like Mookie Wilson in 86, which I did do, but I did Edgar Renteria's game-winning hit in 1997, Luis Gonzalez's game-winning hit in 2001, Uh, Mike Piazza making the last out against Mariano in 2000. And what I found interesting is in those moments I picked, the pitch clock wouldn't have been an issue. Like it was 12 seconds. It was 14 seconds. Like it wasn't like, oh my God, you took away the drama. It were 40 seconds. Now, Pete and I talked about this off air. We have a little dispute on the Mookie at bat because it was a 10 pitch at bat. And before the first pitch, it definitely took a while. And before the last pitch, there was a delay where I think, believe it or not, there was a meeting at the mound with Bob Staley. So, I kind of disqualify those two because I don't know. Like, it's not as if it wasn't Stanley stepping off. There were were meetings on the mound. But on those other eight pitches, it was nine seconds, 12 seconds, eight seconds, 14 seconds. And this is with a guy on base, two guys on base. So the limit's 20 seconds. So those moments weren't affected necessarily. But yeah, if I went back to 2013, we'd have an issue. Because that's what's been going on. It's been going on for a decade. Like, I'm not implying that this problem started two years ago. It started a decade ago. It's been a decade of consistency. And if you go back prior to 2013, the numbers bear out. The game was 10 minutes quicker, 12 minutes quicker. And by the way, that may not sound significant. It's significant. Because those 10 minutes were dead time. That's what caused it. And by the way, going back earlier... There was more offense. So the games were quicker and more runs were being scored. I know that you said you singled out Mike Hargrove as, as being the culprit of why games take take forever because he was more, what does he call it, human rain delay or something like that. Right. But yep. I, I do think I the, the two teams that I think really started this trend, it's really when they played each other, was Red Sox and the Yankees. I remember throughout 2000s, because again, I have a lot of Yankee uh, family members in my family that are just Yankee fans and whatnot, and watching those series, just a regular season game going four hours long, like consistently, consistently. And I think that trend just started to pick up, and that was early 2000s. What is going to be crazy about this is that if the average game, let's say it's 240, Like the pitch clock makes the average baseball game two hours and 40 minutes. 
you would have to go back to 1983 to find a season where the games averaged at two hours and 40 minutes. So, and, but, but the other thing is, if it goes down to like 225, then you got to go down to like 1971. But I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, sometimes things from the past are bad, and sometimes things from the past is actually pretty good. And considering we are not living in this era of a million runs being scored, like, for example, just to to bring up that point about 2000, because 2000 was a year where it was over three hours, there were 10.28 runs per game. That was the amount of runs per game, 10.28. Last year was 8.57. Like that, That's significant. That's almost two runs a game or really a run and a half a game. That's a big, big dip. So the reason why those games were three hours is because there were a lot of runs. Um I do like hearing, though, the other side of this, whether it's you, Pete, or anybody on email, because I think it's a no-brainer. I think it's freaking awesome. (laughs) So when I hear other people disagreeing, I do find it fascinating. But we appreciate the emails. You can email us about anything Mets-related or baseball-related at thericob at gmail.com. We appreciate you listening. Obviously, you can check me out during the week, 2 o'clock on the fan, Pete producing Tiki and Tyranny during the week, 10 a.m. on the fan. Thank you for downloading, reviewing, and listening to Rico Bronia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronia podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.